0: Russian ground forces and military vehicles crossed into Ukraine. Indian Prime Minister has spoken to the Russian President Vladimir Putin, also appealed for an immediate cessation of the violence.
1: The fact though is that Putin's attack on Ukraine has got India walking a tightrope amidst its strong diplomatic ties with both Russia and the United States.
2: New Delhi is under immense pressure to take a stand. Russia is a key supplier of weapons and spares. It is also India's key diplomatic link to Afghanistan and Central
0: Asia.
1: Russia and Ukraine both have been among our first 10 countries in terms of tourism industry. So it has been really, really difficult for the Sri Lankans. As far as the people of Pakistan are concerned,
2: we are just tired and exhausted of conflict. We're very wary of being drawn into another forever war.
0: Why is the Global South taking a neutral position? They regard this as a proxy war between Russia and the United States over Ukrainian bodies. They're saying, we don't want to take part in it.
1: You know, somewhere, Europe has to grow out of the mindset that Europe's problems are the world's problems, but the world's problems are not Europe's problems.
2: Welcome to Beyond the Indus with your hosts, Joe Wallen and Tushar Shetty. And this episode, we're going to talk about the Ukraine war from a different perspective. It's been more than a year since the conflict began, and we're going to dive deep into how it's affected countries in South Asia, how do people here view the conflict, and talk about the wider strategic, economic, and geopolitical factors involved. But before we dive into that, uh, Joe, uh, what have you been up to? Yeah, all good good with me
3: Uh, on my side. I'm currently on my way heading down to, to Kerala. The news that India's overtaking China has has been one of the big, big headlines when it comes to population. Uh this week. It's the first time since nineteen fifty China hasn't been the world's most most populous country. A lot of talk in the media about kind of job creation, about sort of further strains on on sort of public sector infrastructure in India. So looking at education or health. And what a lot of people are aren't aware of is actually that the elderly population in India, those over the age of sixty, you know, that's set to increase by forty percent. Over the next decade, uh, which is a huge demographic shift, so on my way to to coaching to uh, to look into look into that topic, uh, which should be should be fascinating.
2: But what's been what's been piquing your interest in the news this week, Tish? Well, so once in a while, you know, you come across an article that sort of cuts through all the clutter and gets to the heart of the issue in a way that helps you understand the entire uh, scenario better. And I recently found one of these in the Times of India op-ed section that was talking about the upcoming Karnataka elections. So for foreign listeners, Karnataka is a state in the south, and it's a very, very important state in the BJP. They currently are in government, but they are set to lose a historic election that's happening uh, sometime in this year, in the coming year. And basically, Karnataka is a state that Bangalore is in. It's one of the largest and richest states in India. But the BJP traditionally has not done well in South India. So it's very important that they retain at least one state in that region. Basically, the article went into why they have messed up their entire election strategy. And the reason for this, is because in Karnataka, you have these two major castes that have these influential temples called mutts. And these mutts are not just spiritual centers. They sort of organize education, charity, food distribution. They're, they're very much community centers of power, right? And anyone who's in power in that state has to manage it really well. Now, the previous Karnataka CM, uh, Yediyurappa, who was part of the BJP, was very good at this. But the problem is the BJP is not good at sharing power. It's sort of like the Amazon or the Walmart coming into a town and sort of making all the other businesses go out of competition. It's like your one-stop shop for everything to do with internationalism. Mm-hmm. So what they did is they sort of downplayed Europa. They tried to create religious tensions by issues uh, like banning the hijab from colleges. They tried to uh, demonize a very, very historically important king in the region called Tipu Sultan, who was, uh, happened to be Muslim. And this does not seem to have worked. Basically, the cast that Yedi Europa belonged to, the biggest cast in Karnataka, are upset with the BJP because they feel like he's they've demeaned it. And the second largest caste actually considers Tipu Sultan a hero. So they, the BJP was trying to create this small historical movie about how Tipu Sultan was killed by people of this caste. And the head of the largest mutt, the temple, came out and said, please don't do this. You're insulting our community. So it's, it's interesting because we tend to see this entire Hindu nationalism narrative as this one unified force. And I think the country is so diverse and so many interesting nuances in this story that come out really well in this particular op-ed.
3: It's fascinating. I mean, I think we've we've always come well, we've come to to see the BJP as this sort of electoral machine. Uh, but a couple of recent knockbacks. I mean, we saw Congress defeat the BJP in a state election in in the north of the country in, in Himachal Pradesh, and the AAP defeating the BJP in Punjab. So yeah, got a third a third bloody nose for the party potentially would would really send ripples ahead of the the general election next year. Now, uh, from my side, I've been following this week not not just the return or the arrival of the Backstreet Boys into Mumbai, which has really dominated dominated the headlines here over the last couple of days, but but a more somber story that I've, I've been focused on this week. Off the back of some brilliant reporting from the BBC in Afghanistan, we talk about forgotten crises later in this podcast when it comes to Sri Lanka, but Afghanistan is another one that's, that's sort of really fallen away from the headlines with with Ukraine. Now, the United Nations has only received around 5% of its aid funding for year, and has warned that it would have to really scale back its operations. And 97% of Afghans are now thought to be living below the poverty line. The BBC visited Gore province, uh, which is to to the east of Kabul, the one hospital in the region, and just found young children dying from a whole host of preventable diseases. And I think to me, reading the story, it really, really pulled on the heartstrings. I mean, it, it, this is a topic that has really fallen away sort of from the headlines. I'd encourage all of our listeners to to read the BBC's report from Gore, to re-engage uh, with some of these key issues from Afghanistan. Okay, so now also our main topic this week. Tashara and I were were lucky enough to be invited onto the Telegraph's award-winning latest in Ukraine podcast. Uh, with David Knowles, Francis Dernley, and Don Nichols, to discuss the view from South Asia on the war in Ukraine. There's a lot of misunderstanding in, in the West, whether in the United States, in the United Kingdom, or across Europe, uh, as to why India, Pakistan, and other nations in South Asia have abstained from voting against Russia at the, United, at, at the United Nations. So we thought we'd dive deeper. We had a lot of listeners email us to say they were interested in the topic and wanted to know more. So not only to give our own insight, but also to match up this week with a couple of the region's best Best geopolitical thinkers. So that's what we're doing. We're going to dive into Ukraine, both looking at the view from South Asia and also the impact of the war in Ukraine on the region here itself. Stay tuned. Okay, so for, for this week, our first guest is the Hindu's Diplomatic Affairs editor, uh, Sui Singh Haider, one of India's uh, most well-respected journalists, uh, a real thinking head when it comes to, to looking at India's policies around the world. Now, Suhasini was a natural guest uh, for this episode. I mean, I'm sure many of you tune in uh, to Suhasini's, uh YouTube show, her weekly show, Worldview, um, in which she's discussed previously uh, at length the relationship uh, between India and Russia, the historic relationship between India and Russia. So when it came to this episode, we were very keen to have uh, Suhasini on as a guest. So welcome to be on the Indus, uh, Suhasini.
0: Thanks for having me on, Joe, and thank you, Tushar.
3: Fantastic. Um, and I, I understand that you're you're in Goa at the moment. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Um, well, unfortunately, this is not a vacation. This is a working trip to Goa. I'm here actually for a very interesting meeting of foreign ministers of the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And for those particularly in the West, uh, as we call it in Europe, in the US, see India essentially as a part of uh, organizations like the Quad or other organizations with the United States, with the EU, It may surprise them to know that India is also a member of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes Russia, China, four Central Asian states, uh, and Pakistan. So the foreign ministers of those countries are meeting here in Goa on Friday. But it is certainly an interesting point to be here, because remember, this is a run-up to a probable summit where Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and the other leaders will come to Delhi in July this year.
3: Absolutely. I think that the eyes of the world are very much, uh, very much on on uh, As you say, business, business, not pleasure uh, at, at the moment that um, it, it's a really interesting time, as you say, for, for SEO, SEO members. So I think many of our listeners will be keeping a, uh, keeping an eye on the conference there. I mean, first things first, I, I think for, for me, one of the most surprising things since the start of the war in Ukraine, for some the reaction from the West, has been surprised there about India's stance and, and the fact that India hasn't taken this sort of unilateral stance with, with the US and its allies, and instead the country I think is best described as, as taking a position of, of strategic uh, ambivalence. Um, kind of what exactly is India's position uh, on when it comes to Russia? And could you explain this, this concept of strategic ambivalence to our listeners?
0: Well, I think if you were to ask the Indian government, they'd certainly say they see themselves uh, as uh, neutral, as uh, non-aligned, in a sense, in this war in the Ukraine. Uh, the government has, from pretty much uh, February 24th, made it clear that it had its own priorities in the war. To begin with, its priority was basically to bring out about 20,000 Indians, mostly students who were stuck inside conflict zones inside Ukraine. Uh, for that, they needed to be on on basically on good talking terms to both uh, the powers that be in Moscow and in Kiev. After that, um, they started to talk about the idea that India needed to uh, secure its energy uh, security. It needed to secure its food security, uh, fertilizer um, issues as well. Uh, So a lot of India's diplomatic uh, heft, if you like, has gone in the last year to ensuring that these supply chains remain open. And they've been badly hit by Russia's war in Ukraine, followed by the sanctions uh, by about 39 countries, including the United States, the EU and others. Um, And then the third part has been India's sort of very, very hesitant uh, foray into trying to be some kind of a, a message delivery. Or slash mediator in the conflict. The truth is uh, that India has uh, kept its lines open to both Moscow and Kiev. But Prime Minister Modi has met with Putin. He has not met with uh, President Zelensky. Um, the Foreign Minister has uh, been several times, to, uh, you know, to Moscow. The NSA has been. The Defence Minister has been, they've they've hosted Russian ministers. In India, they have not hosted Ukrainian ministers at a ministerial level in India. Neither has any Indian big delegation gone to Kiev. So there is a difference in the way they're approaching the two of them. However, we do speak to also Western diplomats, who maybe a year ago were really quiet, you know, sort of optimistic that India would join their side of the fence, um, who now say, well, we're happy if India keeps some of the lines open to Moscow and passes on some of the messages we want. Of course, uh, the US and the EU have have significantly climbed down on the kind of threats they made a year ago when it came to India buying Russian oil. That was an unexpected bump in the, uh, sort of leap in the India-Russia relationship as well. So what we've seen essentially is India taking the stand that we don't want to take sides in the Ukraine war, uh, but we want to ensure that we are not hurt, and uh, we want to also represent the global South countries that should not be hurt by either the war um, or the sanctions as well. Yes,
3: yeah, so I think there was there was sort of real concern almost in in the West when a month into the war, this is this is March 2022, we saw Sergei Lavrov, the the Russian Foreign Minister, uh, make a visit to to Delhi, um, and this was quite widely widely condemned. Um, but for what a lot of our listeners. Maybe don't realize, I think something a lot of Western policymakers don't don't realize is that India and Russia have this historic relationship that, that goes back decades. I mean Jay Shankar, the, the Indian Foreign minister, described it as the, the most stable of all kind of major economic partnerships. I mean, are you able to explain uh, to our listeners how or what India and Russia's historic relationship entails?
0: Well, you know, Joe, it is uh, it is a fact that India has uh, for decades had a very close relationship with the Soviet Union. There are many reasons for this. But in the Cold War, if you like, the U.S. definitely uh, chose partners that weren't India, including uh, a partnership, security partnership with Pakistan. India had good ties with Moscow from the very beginning, from its independence. Uh, but it wasn't until 1971 when things really got much closer. Uh, because India and the Soviet Union signed what was called a Friendship Treaty, that they uh, signed in 1971. Of course, it was signed just months before the war that led to the independence of Bangladesh, uh, where Indian soldiers fought Pakistani soldiers eventually and helped liberate Bangladesh. That was a war, again, where the U.S., chose to stand with Pakistan. In fact, at one point, uh, the U.S. even sent in a fleet uh, in the Indian Ocean, supposedly to threaten India. At that time, the fact that the Soviet Union sort of backed India and certainly was in this cooperation agreement has always held very heavy over India's concept uh, conceptualization of its relationship with Moscow. Now, you might ask that if in 1971 it was the Soviet Union that India tied up with, then that included both Russia and Ukraine. Uh, So why is India uh, showing its support for Moscow instead? And I think it is because of the kind of relationship that developed after. It was a very uh, close political relationship, one between the governments, but it was also a big defense relationship. And until about 2011 or 12, India got most of its hardware, defense hardware from Russia. Even today, if you were to look at India's hardware dependency on Russia, it ranges around 50 to 60 percent. But the dependency on its spare parts is close to much more. It's actually closer to 80%. Finally, if you look at transfer of technology, and in this new age, uh, when you look at transfer of technology, it is only Moscow that actually does any kind of transfer of technology. So this is something that India has been speaking to European countries about. It has been speaking to the United States about. But so far, nothing has happened. Finally, in this entire supply chain, if you like, of defense hardware, There are India's defense exports, and its biggest headline item of defense exports is something called the BrahMos missile. And it literally stands for the Brahmaputra Moskva, uh, the two rivers, one in India and one in Russia. So you can see that they are linked, they're very lockstep when it comes to uh, defense hardware uh, imports into India, even though obviously this relationship is under a lot of strain since the Ukraine war for obvious reasons. Russia is using its defense hardware really for its own war, uh, not being able to export as much. India is unable to pay for a lot of this because of the sanctions. And it is a relationship that is is fraying somewhat. Uh, But there are other parts to that traditional relationship. There's also India's energy dependence. And by that, you know, it isn't uh, that India used to buy Russian oil in the past. In fact, in the past, Russia was about 17th on the list of countries exporting to India. Today, Russia has been number one for the last few months. India has become, as of uh, December, Russia's biggest importer of oil. Uh, One of the reasons that India has been doing this is, of course, as you pointed out, keeping prices in India stable. Uh, energy prices in India are stable, uh, but what we've also done, and this was a story the Hindu worked on this week, we were looking at a report out of Helsinki that essentially called India one of five laundromat companies, uh, accusing India, China, Turkey, uh, UAE, and Singapore of actually buying so much Russian oil uh, that they weren't using it all internally for domestic uh, purposes, but were actually exporting a large amount of it as uh, crude products that had been refined in Indian refineries. One of those refineries is actually a 50% or nearly 50% owned by Rosneft, the Russian oil company. India also has um, uh, stakes in Russian oil and gas fields, uh, about $16 billion worth of it. Uh, And then when you come to the nuclear energy part of the equation, again, Russia is the only country that actually uh, operates and constructs foreign nuclear power plants in India. Uh, so even though one might have heard a lot about the United States-India civil nuclear deal, for example, there aren't actually any American nuclear power plants in India, nor a French one, although one is being planned. For for a number of these reasons, we have seen the relationship between the two countries come very, very close over a number of decades. Finally, and this is the big question that many ask, and in fact, I have to be honest, uh, because I myself was surprised, as as you pointed out, that India had not yet, in a sense, said anything about the act of the invasion of Ukraine, a sovereign neighbor. To date, India has not issued any such statement. To date, India has uh, voted to abstain, has actually abstained from voting over about 25 votes at the United Nations, the UNGA, the UNSC, Human Rights Council, IAEA, on none of the resolutions that sought to criticize Russia, whether they were resolutions that were seen as fairly mild, that basically asked for humanitarian access in Ukraine where uh, civilians were being bombed, uh, others on the nuclear issue as well, nuclear safety issue, on none of them has New Delhi, has the Modi government actually voted. They have abstained from all those votes. Uh, And and one of the reasons for that has been the kind of support India has always received from Soviet Union and then Russia in the Security Council. As a permanent member, Russia has always held a huge, um, uh, a lot of power with the veto. And India has counted on Moscow to, in a sense, ensure that no resolutions at the Security Council come to criticize India, particularly on issues like uh, Jammu and Kashmir. Um, So it's for a whole number of reasons. Obviously, the sum of the part over here is really much greater than the whole. Uh, You still see the kind of closeness in ties, regardless of which government comes to power.
2: Yeah. And, you know, as you were speaking about the 1971 war, even even as the U.S. sent their U.S.'s enterprise aircraft carrier fleet and, and, and ships with that, Russia actually, I was reading the book, sent part of the Pacific fleet of nuclear submarines. And there was apparently a tense moment where the commanders were issued instructions that if the Americans cross a certain line in the Indian Ocean, then the Soviet submarines have uh, permission to fire upon them. It's almost a Cuban missile crisis style, well, crisis. And the fact that Russia could extend that much support, uh, not just weapons, not just intelligence, not just diplomatic support, shows what kind of ally it has been in the past. But our next question is going to delve into how do we take this relationship in the future? You've outlined some of the ways that Russia still has good relation with us both at the UN. They support us economically. Of course, defense is uh, one of the most important variables in there. But considering the current trajectory of where let's say, Western-Russia relations are going, considering the state of their economy and the state of their diplomatic support after this war. How do you see that relationship progressing? And and do you think that there's any strategic value in still having a good relation with Russia? For instance, with respect to China, we hear that we want Russia not to be completely in the Chinese camp. We want to maintain good relationship with them so that uh, they don't end up just becoming completely subordinate to China, at least diplomatically. So where do you think this relationship is going and what are the reasons you think we should or should not continue this trajectory of maintaining good relations with a state like Russia?
0: Well, you know, Tushar, what is interesting is that there are reasons that are given by the government for a particular stand and then there are excuses. Um, So, of course, you will often hear uh, the excuse that India wishes to keep Russia far away from China. However, I think anyone who's been watching the trajectory of Russia China ties over the last since 2014, actually, and the Crimean crisis, and China's uh, energy deal with Russia at the time that really bailed them out, I think it should be fairly obvious that nothing India is going to do is actually going to, uh, in a sense, uh, create a wider rift between Russia and China. In fact, Yeah, we've seen European leaders go to Beijing, for example, and impress on China that it should pull away from Russia. India would, of course, like the opposite to happen. But I do think the broader question that you ask is a very important one, because many do believe that given that the Western world that India is so closely aligned with, if you like, uh, ideologically, the idea of coalitions of democracies, the idea of free, uh, pluralistic, uh, democratic countries holding certain values and regard for the international rules-based order would actually uh, stand on the western side eventually. I think that's been something that's driven western diplomats for the last year and you might have watched as foreign minister after foreign minister paraded through Delhi essentially making exactly the same point uh, that India must change its stand at the United Nations in its ties with Russia. Um, They have been left disappointed shall we say and they have certainly learned to move on from their disappointment and keep their relationship with India. Um, Where does this relationship go? You know, Napoleon once said, show me a country's geography and I'll tell you its history. Uh, And I'd only add to that, you can pretty much talk about its foreign policy as well, because India has two realities when it comes to its geography. On the one side, of course, there is this Indo-Pacific reality, the Maritime Sphere, where it is uh, essentially working with the EU, with the U.S., with the Quad countries, talking about Indo-Pacific exercises, um, working on HADR, humanitarian assistance, uh, disaster relief together, working on things like vaccines and, and all the rest of that. but. The large part of India's reality is taken up by its continental realities. And by that I mean its frontiers with China and with Pakistan. 3,500 kilometers of a line of actual control It's not even a, a notified boundary with China. And then another extremely tense line of control with Pakistan and a border with Pakistan as well. Given that reality, India is always going to have to keep a lot of its resources and a lot of its focus on its continental boundaries. And if you look even further north and further west, all the way to Russia, there aren't really any of the allies that we just spoke about. You know, there's no Australia, Japan and and the U.S. and Europe over there. Instead, you have Central Asian countries, you have Pakistan, you have Iran, uh, you have the Gulf countries that are also taking a certain slightly more independent stance during uh, this particular crisis. So you're seeing that India's continental reality is really... Uh, very much uh, needs for India to have friends in Moscow. So where does this relationship go? I think it still goes exactly as it has gone in the past. Maybe transactionally, you will see a difference. As I said, it might become virtually impossible to do more defense trade between the two countries. India may be looking elsewhere for its uh, defense imports in the short term, certainly. But it does not change the strategic underpinnings of India right now.
2: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned um, EU and Western diplomats were expecting us to back them initially and now we're sort of making excuses and they're sort of going through this line of yeah, free and democratic nations. And I do detect a sense of our strategic priorities aren't completely aligned as they might think they are and perhaps that divergence might cause some conflict I, I, in the future. But I, I do want to ask in this current scenario, right? Um, we've seen a lot of criticism come from, let's say, the public in the West. Initially, there was some criticism coming from the actual governments considering our stance in Ukraine. But why has the American and European governments so far tolerated or not really made a big deal about India's stance in the Ukraine war? And do you think that's going to stay the same? Or do you see you know, the trends changing? Do you think there might be a slightly stronger response in the future?
0: You know, I could make the case that India has actually made its case very convincingly over the last year to uh, the the U.S. and to Europe in that why it needs to keep its stand on Russia. And for all the reasons that we've just been discussing so far, I I could also make the case that India has in the past year shown uh, the West that not everyone, in fact, most of the rest of the world is not exactly with them. Why do I say this? Because While 140 countries in the UN General Assembly voted to criticize Russia on a number of resolutions, of course, India continued to abstain, only 39 countries are actually part of that sanctions regime, are part of the price cap coalition, are part of any of the strictures against Russia. Why have so many other countries stayed out? So India's case would be, we as part of the global south, see that we are going to get hurt if we try to join your uh, coalition against Russia. And we don't really want to. One of the cases that has also been made by the External Affairs Minister uh, Jai Shankar has been that Europe cannot behave like its war is the whole world's war, but all the other world's problems are not their problem. Um, but the real answer to your question, Tushar, I think would very simply be that the West's concerns about China uh, and its um, its concept of the world in the future of the great power rivalry of the future between the U.S. and China essentially requires India to be in their corner. While it seems impossible to bring India into their corner when it comes to Russia, on China it seems that much easier because it is true India's biggest threat strategically is from Beijing. Uh, China has not been uh, a kindly neighbor. China has um, uh, not only been extremely aggressive at various points of India's line of actual control, Uh, It has grabbed land over the last few years, although the government doesn't really want to talk about that. Uh, And it has continued a huge, a massive trade deficit with India, refusing to buy Indian products to kind of balance it out a little bit. Um, So there has been no question that India has come around to the idea that its biggest strategic threat today is from China. Uh, In that scenario, the U.S. particularly and also Europe that are looking for uh, a coalition uh, of the future that would range against China need India to be in their corner. I think there's also a small amount of realization that if something is not going to be a success, why pin all your hopes, you know, your own reputation on it? Uh, And if India is going to take such a strong stand, it might be pointless for U.S. and Europe to take them on, you know. Um, uh later this year, we'll see how it plays out when it comes to India's role as president of the G20, uh, which it's going to hold the summit for in September this year. And it'll be interesting to see if it is able to bring the two uh, sides together for a joint communique, just as Indonesia did last year. The signs aren't good.
3: Sure, and I think we we touched on a little bit there, but from from us, I mean, perhaps you could explain to our readers, our our readers and our listeners, even, you know, kind of why India is seen to be in this kind of unique geopolitical position when it comes to the West. I mean, we've seen sort of favorable treatment kind of meted out to India, something from the US. You know, I think I think about the the S four hundred defense systems that the US sanctioned Turkey, for example, from buying from Russia, but didn't didn't sanction India. I mean, what does India have? What does India bring to the table that the US, you know, and and Europe are so so interested in?
0: Well, I think uh, India and particularly the Modi government bring three things to the table. Uh, One, of course, India, as it stands, the world's most populous country, it is the world's fastest growing country in terms of GDP growth. And it is a country that is seen by and large of being one of the single, um, uh, in fact, one of probably the only such country of such a large population that remains or for the moment, at least, is a pluralistic, inclusive democracy. There's a lot of concern about where India is going as a democracy, but I think there is a sense in the West that India is a country that that traditionally historically shares those values of, uh, you know, liberalism, of, uh, um, of democracy, and of fair play, in a sense. Uh, so that's one of the reasons for India's sweet spot, but I would say this has always been India's sweet spot. It is always seen as a kind of country that people have a lot of goodwill for. Indians go around the world. Uh, I think there are some 14 million Indians that are working in countries around the world. I think there's an 18 million who are actually citizens of other countries of Indian origin. Um, and they, by and large, have a very good reputation around the world. So that is India's traditional position. The second part of this is what I was discussing earlier, India's position vis-a-vis China. And the fact that a future geopolitical rivalry with China will require having a country as large as India, on 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 that western side so they don't want to say too much to upset and i think the third part of this equation is that this particular government has shown that it can be very very tricky in the face of any kind of criticism uh last year i remember an american diplomat coming to delhi uh, and saying uh, in no uncertain words as you were pointing out that there would be consequences for countries that supported russia in this post-ukraine situation I mean, uh, the Americans were practically demarched over it. Uh, India has shown that whenever there is criticism from the US, uh, UK, Europe, on any of the issues that they feel are their own uh, internal matter, whether it is on trade with Russia, whether it is on human rights, whether it is uh, on the freedom of media, NGOs and all the rest, uh, that they will hit back very hard. Uh, So this is a government that has been able to show these Western countries that it uh, it is willing to go that extra bit. And by and large, I find uh, Western capitals don't really want to push India too far.
2: And that was Suwasti Haider, who gave us an excellent overview of the entire issue. I do encourage listeners to check out her YouTube show, Worldview with Suhasiti Haider. For our next segment, we wanted to answer some of our listeners' direct questions about South Asia and the Ukraine conflict. Uh, Do remember, you can write to us at beyondtheindus at gmail.com or tweet at us at beyondtheindus1 on Twitter. Uh, But to help us with that, we have Sushant Singh, a friend of the podcast and Joe's go-to expert for all things strategy and geopolitics.
3: Mr. Singh is a senior fellow at the Center for Policy Research, one of India's leading think tanks, which is based in Delhi, a lecturer at Yale University in the United States, author of several books, a regular columnist at the Hindu, and a former Officer in the Indian Army. I mean, it's an impressive career. Uh, welcome to Beyond the Beyond the Indus, Sushant. Thank you so much, George. Thanks a lot. So we've spoken. We've spoken a lot already uh, on this week's episode about India's policy towards Russia. But what explains the policies of other countries in the region, say Pakistan or Sri Lanka, who have also purchased oil from Russia uh, and also abstained from voting against Russia at the United Nations? Uh, you know, kind of what might decide these countries' policies, Sushant?
1: So, essentially, each country is unique by itself. So, as uh, I'll take Sri Lanka first. So, as you know, Sri Lanka used to get a lot of tourists from Russia. It, its economy was dependent on, in a certain manner, on those Russian tourists which were coming. This, I think second highest number of tourists which, from any country that Sri Lanka was getting was from Russia. Also, uh, a large chunk of black tea that Sri Lanka was exporting was going to Russia. Uh, Sri Lanka was also dependent on Russia for wheat. Sri Lanka was also dependent on Russia for a lot of other goods. It, uh, sh- both Russia and Ukraine were major trade trade partners for, uh, for 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 Sri Lanka. Also, Sri Lanka has very close ties with China as well as very close ties with India. Uh, and in that sense, because both India and China have been abstaining on uh, on on the Russia issue, on the Ukraine, on the issue of Ukraine invasion, uh, it's very logical that Sri Lanka has uh, has followed that line. Uh, in fact, like many other third world countries, many other countries of the global South, they do not wish to take on Russia or to antagonize Russia or to antagonize China in any manner. They think that this path where they do not antagonize either side, either the West or or, or, Shiloh, or Russia or China works best for them. Uh, as far as Pakistan is concerned, it's a very different, different case. Pakistan was a very close ally of the United States throughout the Cold War and even after the Cold War because of the military operations in, in, in Afghanistan. With Russia, it has, it has had very limited ties. But because of the economic crisis that Pakistan finds itself in and the very poor state of its relationship with the United States, it's looking at Russia as as only a, some kind of an economic partner which can provide it with some fuel, cheap fuel, which can provide it with some food and try and elevate some of the concerns that that it has. Uh, But also, it comes from the fact that China and Pakistan are very close allies, and China and Russia have great ties. Uh, But the Russian Deputy Deputy Prime Minister last month very clearly said, he clarified there would be no military ties with Pakistan, there would only be economic ties with Pakistan. Another interesting fact about Pakistan is that Pakistan is one of those countries which is actually supplying ammunition to Ukraine. Uh, through one of those bridges which have been created by the you know, by London by the by the UK, uh, and that makes the situation pretty complicated. But because Russia wants to have uh, as many economic partners as it can get at this point in time, it is overlooking those issues and uh, continues to engage with Pakistan.
3: Yeah, I think that the Pakistan and Ukraine relationship is particularly interesting one. Well, and again, something I've learned a lot about in the last couple of weeks. I think since 2000, $1.6 dollars worth of military. Equipment traded between Ukraine and Pakistan, which I think is something that has gone under the radar. I think certainly for, for many, for many even here in South Asia. And I look over the last week or so, and there's been a deal for uh, Islamabad to send ammunition to Kiev, and in return, Kiev is sending, I think, to the parts of the Mi7 helicopters. So th- this this is a, an interesting relationship there. Then on the other hand, you have it's the first shipment of oil will arrive in Pakistan. Um, later this month from Russia, it's been a, ch- a Chinese brokered deal. As I'm sure many of our listeners will, will know, uh, very strong relations between Islam and Beijing. You know, China's called Pakistan; it's its all weather partner. Invested a huge amount of money in in Pakistan. So interesting to see that China's now brokered that that fuel deal for Pakistan. Um, you know, a country which desperately needs cheap fuel. You know, uh, enjoying the worst economic crisis in the country's history. As uh, is Mifta Ismail, uh, who was a guest on our, our first podcast, convinced me to. A lot of detail, so it's interesting to see countries in the region. I think as you say, sort of playing playing both sides. You know, against Sri Lanka is another country which which looking to import cheap cheap oil from from Russia. You know, following its IMF bailouts, uh still struggling to recover economically. So, the very interesting, I think, across the region to see countries are and putting national interests first and feeling the feeling confident to do so and not risking kind of pushback from, from the US.
1: Yeah, uh, that's true. Uh, Joe, actually, uh, another interesting facet is that the uh, main battle tank that the Pakistani army uses, which is the DATUD, is actually a Ukrainian tank. That's the main of Pakistan army, and Pakistan army, as you know, continues to dominate Pakistan's society, polity, economy in every possible way. And that could perhaps explain some of the affiliation that Pakistan feels feels for Ukraine. Uh, and is going ahead with supplying the kind of ammunition that it is supplying.
2: So a uh, listener of ours, Marcus Bellinger, uh, wanted to get an update about the situation in Sri Lanka. We've already discussed Pakistan's quality crisis in the previous episode, but Sri Lanka has also gone through a significant crisis in its uh, own country. So what is the latest in Sri Lanka and how are they coping with this geopolitical conflict in their economy?
3: Um, yes, yeah, so it's it's a very good question, and uh, we're always happy to to hear from our from our listeners. So thank you for for emailing in, uh, Marcus. Um, yes, yeah, so Sri Lanka is a country that I spend an enormous amount of two thousand twenty two reporting from during the sort of peak of the crisis there and it was just heartbreaking to see you know rampant inflation out of control but still kind of massive sort of food insecurity and save the children have called it a crisis you know reports of, of stunting amongst children widespread and, and again you know almost like daily weekly alerts from Rishwankin hospitals I regularly catch up with the medical association now and the senior figures and in many hospitals, those, you know, that medication isn't available. So Sri Lanka still has, has, a, has a long way to go. Um, you know, a mass exodus of Sri Lankans as well, leaving, leaving the country, kind of record numbers of Sri Lankans applying for, for permits to, to leave. Um, I think from, from India as well, we've, we've seen kind of boats of Sri Lankans arriving in Tamil Nadu, particularly from the north of the country in poorer part of Sri Lanka. Uh, which we haven't seen, as far as I'm aware. Maybe uh, Sushant, you could, could confirm on this since since the civil war in Sri Lanka. This is still very very difficult situation in the country, but hopefully this is the start of the start of things slowly improving.
1: Uh, two things here. One is in South Asia, Sri Lanka was the most prosperous country. Uh, there was no other country which had the kind of per capita GDP that Sri Lanka posted off. And the second thing is that the Ukraine uh, war has. Has been a hammering blow to Sri Lanka, suffering from economic crisis even before the war happened. So the three major issues which came out, which should already come out during the economic crisis, and which have been really hammered home uh, in the Ukraine war, is as Joe said, the food issue, the fuel issue, and the fertiliser issue. And on all those three counts, uh, Sri Lanka has really uh, got the wrong end, wrong end of the stick, uh, so 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 to speak. Uh, inflation is very, very high. It's a humanitarian crisis. It is also a political crisis because even today there is no political answer to the problem that uh, that that came in two, three years ago, uh, and the political leadership is unable to inspire confidence in the people or, una- or unable to find a solution uh, to the problems that uh, that seem to be plaguing that country. It is true that since the civil war, this is the first time people have moved out in boats to come down to Tamil Nadu. And they're not really welcome in India, in that sense. India does not have a refugee policy. India is not a signatory to the UN refugees. India does not welcome the Rohingyas from Myanmar. India does not welcome refugees from Tamil Nadu. India really does not welcome refugees from any country, including Afghanistan, who are suffering under the Taliban. Uh, And that continues to be applied to uh, Sri Lankans as well, despite some of them being Tamils who share the same ethnicity, uh, as people belonging to the state of Tamil Nadu, Tamil Nadu in India. Uh, so all in all, Sri Lanka is going through a tough situation. Yes, it's it's you know it, it really is a, a sad
3: situation. And again, you know we, we talk about kind of macro political mismanagement in Pakistan, but in Sri Lanka, you know I, I think even even worse. I mean, as Sushav mentions, that the issue of fertilizer was was a key one there, where the Sri Lankan government uh, this list outright banned the chemical fertilizers without without warning. Um, And farmers had obviously used the products for for decades and decades, um, which led to a massive, massive drop in yields. The war in Ukraine made things worse because Sri Lanka was a massive fertilizer importer uh, from both Russia and Ukraine. uh, And that flow of fertilizer was halted. Um, So when the government then reversed the policy and and let farmers use chemical fertilizers again, the price of fertilizers had, had skyrocketed. You know, a story comes to mind from, from last week, which we covered at The, at the Telegraph, which is, you know, there's been controversy in Colombo over a proposed policy to send uh, to 100,000 monkeys, that are a, maka, a certain type of macaque monkey that is only found in Sri Lanka, to China. The motivation seems to be for some extra foreign exchange, but environmentalists and activists in Sri Lanka are outraged by this and have said that the monkeys will end up in medical facilities or even, even in restaurants. So it does give an idea about how the death situation is there when it comes to, to foreign exchange, when it comes to the economy, that these kind of policies are, are being considered? Yeah, one to one to keep an eye on for the rest of this year, I would say.
1: It's also interesting that the that the global attention has actually moved away from Sri Lanka uh, because of really? Ukraine, because of the Ukraine crisis, uh, and that's why it's a very important question that uh, that this listener has raised because uh, to pay attention to the crisis that is still brewing in Sri Lanka uh, is is, is uh, at least in some manner. is critical as it? working particularly for South Asia.
3: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's, from a sort of journalistic perspective, trying to get stories commissioned at the moment on Sri Lanka is very difficult because, as you say, that the world's focus is on Ukraine and, and because the crisis has been so long-standing in Sri Lanka, trying you're trying, trying to get stories out there, um, you know, has been difficult recently. Um, I think the Financial Times have done a couple of very good sort of deep dives on sort of the continued crisis there. So, for our listeners that are keen to to read more about it, I would I would have a look there on, on the Financial Times. Moving on now, how I mean, Sushan, uh, how would you explain the reaction of the Indian public to the war in Ukraine? I mean, I think one study that really stuck out to me was that in in January there was a poll done by by Morning Consult which showed that thirty eight percent of Indian adults blame Russia for the war, but combined forty four percent, so so a higher a higher percentage blame the US or NATO. I mean, why do you think that
1: might be here in India? So I think the uh, the 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 reason may be twofold. One is at the, the elite level, it is the it is the history of the Cold War and the relationship that uh, the very close ties that India had, had with Moscow uh, all during the period while the United States was supporting Pakistan and the fact that Indians always believed the Soviet Union or thereafter Russia would is a country which would come to their aid uh, has created a narrative which has seeped in elite circles where the United States is not trusted even today despite the fact that uh, Indo-U.S. ties have really uh, have really improved and have become very strong. But even then, within the elite circles, I regularly hear voices that, no, 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 you cannot trust the U.S. Russia is an old friend. Russia is not going anywhere. We need to support it, etc. So that is at one level. And at the second level, which is very peculiar to India in some senses, uh, that Mr. Putin is seen as this strong man you know, who has gone ahead and taken over Ukraine or is about to win over Ukraine can get away with by doing whatever it wants to do. And a lot of people in India, particularly Mr. Modi's supporters, see a parallel with, with, with him uh, that Mr. Modi could perhaps go and do the same thing in Pakistan. When the Ukraine war happened, there were posters put in, in the Connaught Circus area of Delhi, which actually said said that, you know, that the way Putin is doing this Greater Russia, Mr. Modi would do Akhand Bharat or Greater India. So it is at two levels. One is at the elite level where the memory of the Cold War and the very strong ties that India had with Soviet Union continue to influence them. And at a very popular level, or at a very at the level of Mr. Modi's supporters, it is about the strongman image, the macho image that they could go and do and get away with whatever they whatever such a strongman wishes to do. Yeah, so Sushant, I have a follow-up
2: to that question, which is, I guess the support for Russia is quite apparent. Uh, you see it in polls, you see it in the conversations happening in public spaces. But what I want to ask you is, if our people are people comfortable or is it accepted what's happening in Ukraine? Uh, are people not moved or at least a little bit uh, shocked by, let's say, human rights violations that are happening in Ukraine? Or is everyone completely fine with uh, you know, the actual war? Uh, what's your impression from what you've heard and read?
1: Yeah, my impression is exactly same as yours that we that it uh, the scenes coming out of Ukraine do not seem to to move the, move the people at all. Uh, this they have not resonated at all with with large masses of of Indians. There's absolutely no empathy or sympathy that you see uh, see for what's going on in Ukraine and the way Ukraine has been targeted. But it's just not about principles of sovereignty or territorial integrity, which India should be actually upholding very strongly because uh, of what China is doing to doing to India. Uh, But even then, uh, the Indians do not seem to be moved by these scenes. If I were to be slightly politically incorrect, but Indians are not moved by the scenes of human rights violations within their own country, whether it be in in Jammu and Kashmir or be it in Nagaland or Manipur or elsewhere. So to expect a large section of Indians to be moved by scenes coming out of Ukraine is actually expecting a bit too much.
2: Right, right. And I think this brings us uh, perfectly to our next question which uh, Deborah Pradez and Sula Vardarajan from Swell uh, have both asked about the Ukraine-India relation, a component of this. How have they been, those relations been affected by the war and how do they view us? And Sushant, I think that's a very interesting side of the story that's not really been explored that much. I mean, we've seen uh, the Deputy Foreign Minister, um, Amina Jarapova come to India and uh, hold a lot of uh, discussions and give press conferences. Ukraine and India have had relations before this in terms of defense, in terms of medicines, exports. Uh, How have they evolved during the war and what do you think Ukraine's view is of us uh, and our participation in this entire conflict?
1: So the Ukraine-India ties have actually cooled down during the war to the surprise of Ukrainians, almost to the level of anger uh, we saw the Ukrainian ambassador in New Delhi come out publicly and issue some very strong statements off the record. And uh, in private meetings, they have voiced their anger, their frustration with the Indian side as to why is New Delhi not understanding what is being done to Ukraine. But at the same time, they want to, they want to continue with the kind of relationship they had with India earlier, whether it is in terms of facilitating the return of students who can go and study there, and as you probably know, more than 90% of the students which are from India have already gone back, or in terms of other kinds of support that India can provide, whether it is in terms of medicines or whether it is in terms of other humanitarian aid that Ukraine can uh, can get out of India. The ties have definitely cooled down and the Ukrainians do recognize uh, that India is, as a major country, as a big country, India is one of the countries they, they would have expected to stand by them to do something for them, but it has not, not done any, anything for them. I have had Ukrainian officials approach me uh, trying to understand as to why the Indian public opinion is against them. And that's something very, very hard to explain. They have also tried to influence Indian public opinion in some way, but they have not succeeded. Uh, they have not succeeded. And that and that challenge continues to remain. The, the basis of the ties is very thin, as you said, there's a little bit of trade which goes on and there are a few military upgradation projects which are which which are with ukraine uh, but it is very small compared to the kind of ties or the gamut of ties that india has with russia particularly in the sphere of defence and now uh, in terms of crude oil supplies well I, I guess
3: relatively recently in in february we we had quite a senior Ukrainian official, the chief of the foreign affairs committee in Ukraine again calling on the US to impose sanctions uh, on on India for for it continuing to buy by oil from, from Moscow. And I think these kind of calls fell on deaf ears. I mean I mean India is we talk about China and, and Pakistan's relations, but India and US relations, you know, they share so many strategic objectives. Uh, in the Indo-Pacific, you know, India is, is the US's big, big ally here. And I, I think that's something that Ukraine is going to going to have to accept. I, you know, I don't see a hardening in, in the U.S.'s position uh, towards India, something that we discussed quite a lot with our previous guest, uh, Haider. I mean, how, how what do you think about that, Sushant? I mean, do you see any shifting at all kind of from the U.S.'s position towards India?
1: No, definitely not. I do not see any shifting of U.S. positions. In fact, the US, U.S. has made it amply clear that it is not going to push India on any issue whatsoever, whether it is buying of crude oil from Russia, whether it is you know what what has been described as laundromat that you're supplying your buying crude from russia and sub- supplying it to europe making money in the bargain so very clearly the biden administration has taken a call that they are going to overlook everything as long as india can cooperate with them work with them in the indo pacific and against china whatever the larger new emerging geopolitical scenario that is emerging if india can work along with the united states it's going to overlook every other issue Including Russia, and I do not see that any calls by Ukraine are going to change that calculation uh, for the Biden administration. For them, China remains the, the biggest threat, and India is the biggest country which lies in Asia that can afford, that can, in some way, if not counter, at least provide a major obstacle to the to Chinese giants.
2: But Sushant, you uh, do see some voices in the U.S. that are trying, saying now that. Perhaps India isn't as much of a nada as we think they are. For instance, uh, I think Ashley terrace put an article up on foreign Valsi, where he said that in the long run, you know, US should uh, not delude itself that India would rush to, you know, join them in any military confrontation with China. So do you see a shift in the public discussion in the US as to India's long-term reliability as even a partner in the struggle against, let's say, Chinese influence?
1: No, absolutely right. Uh, uh, this is a good question. Actually, I actually wrote the piece in Foreign Affairs uh, a couple of days back on on the first of May. Uh, and the piece actually makes makes the argument that the U.S. should temper its expectations, while India India wants all the support that it can get from the U.S. against China. It is not going to join any military activity that U.S. may uh, unleash against uh, uh, against China. And I think uh, Ashley's argument essentially comes from the it comes from the fact that his understanding of India, his reading of India, and what India wants to do uh, is very different from perhaps some of some of the officials in the uh, Biden administration have. Uh, will it force the Biden administration to change their policies towards India in the short term? No. It uh, It looks highly unlikely that these policies would be changed. But could a course correction take place over, let's say, three years, five years, seven years post Biden administration? Yes. Because at some point in time, these questions will be asked in Washington, D.C. as to what does India bring to the table while asking for all that it is asking from us to to deal with China. And I think those questions actually has in some way preempted those questions and raised those questions at a time when when the geopolitical circumstances have changed. So the U.S.-China relationship was very different 20 years back when India and the U.S. had started interacting or or their relationship was still developing. 20 years down the line, the U.S.-China relationship is radically different. It has completely, they're completely different apart. So the expectations of of India from the U.S. or U.S. from India have also changed because of these changed circumstances. And I think this is what uh, Ashley pointed out in that uh, piece in Foreign Affairs.
2: So many thanks to Shishant Singh. Uh, I believe he was quite direct and straightforward about the reality of the war's impact on South Asian countries. So Joe, what are your impressions? How do you think things are gonna change moving forward? I think for me, the biggest takeaway is is that really the war in Ukraine has
3: heralded uh, an era of, of multipolarism. Um, I mean, we're seeing countries across the world rather than kind of falling into one camp or another as we saw during the Cold War, and increasingly playing both sides for their own advantages. India being a great example of that, taking advantage of cheaper Russian oil to drive economic growth. Then also cooperating with America, Japan and Australia when it comes to the immediate threat of China uh, in its
2: neighbourhood. Given the wider geopolitical stakes at play here, one can see why sanctions may not be the most effective tool to convince the global south to come on board. But I do hope to see policies that better align with the interests of all stakeholders involved. And the price gap for oil, for instance, is a great example of this. Let's hope we see more of these policies in the future.
3: So, that's all we've got time for on this week's episode of Beyond the Indisk. But we hope you'll join us in Fortnite's time. Have a great week.